Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom is a space between. It's where heaven and earth collide. It's a moment in time where brokenness, pain, and hurt are swallowed up in the power of pure love, grace, and compassion. Matthew 13.45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls when he discovered a pearl of great value. He sold everything he owned and bought it. The kingdom is what happens when a person looks at the brokenness in our world and chooses to live for its restoration and redemption instead of being content with its destruction. Matthew 19, 14, but Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. The kingdom of heaven happens when the heart of God pours out of a human life, having a rarely seen restorative effect on the fractured world around them. Matthew 5, 3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We're in a series right now talking about the kingdom. Um, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what does it mean, what does it look like? Um, and my goal over the last couple of weeks has been to paint this, this alternate picture of what that looks like, what that means, or, or maybe a more accurate um, description of it. Maybe one that Jesus would be proud of, one that Jesus would say, yes, that's what I was after when I said, the kingdom is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And when he finds that pearl of great value, he sells everything he owns so he can go and buy that pearl. This is the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. It's what it feels like. And I hope that over the course of the last couple of weeks, you've gotten a little more clarity or a taste of what it actually means, what it looks like. Um, and and bigger than that, so that we can begin a process of choosing to step into that in the everyday moments of our lives, um, with our whole lives, with everything that we have. This week is all about taking seriously this call on our lives to live it, to not just think about it, to actually begin living into something that's different. Um, I've, always asked, I've been asking myself this question a lot this week. What if the church was known for leaving a wake of hope, freedom, and restoration in the world instead of pain and confusion? The bottom line is we, um, we aren't just called to talk about this stuff. Talking about it doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything unless the values find their way into our hearts. Um, they find their way into our lives and then they find their way out into the world that is so desperate for the grace, the power, the mercy, and the love of Jesus. Um, but Jesus leaves us a roadmap uh, for what this looks like throughout his life. And, and it's, it's really it's amazing to think that we can open up a book and we can see the life of Christ and the way that his life is fleshed out among real people like us. And the more you read these stories, even though it was thousands of years ago, the more you can connect with the fact that all of their junk is the same as all of our junk all of their social issues, all their political issues, it's all the same. And Jesus had these incredible responses for all of them. And for us, as we come into a place like this, I said it a couple of weeks ago, we don't want to just play church, we don't want to just show up and do this thing, because the kingdom doesn't happen here. There are some opportunities for the kingdom to shine anywhere, so it can happen here as well. But the truth is that the kingdom happens um, in these spaces between these these moments of simplicity in our lives where we have the opportunity to shine the light of the kingdom and God's grace and his love for us and his mercy on the hope that he offers, the life that he wants to give us into the dark places of life in this world. And, and it seems that those dark places are everywhere if we're willing to look and notice, which is a huge part of what we're going to talk about today. Um, well, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9 to see this roadmap for how, how Jesus would have us choose to start living into this kingdom concept. It's more than just, it's more than just thinking about it. And, and it's one of my frustrations, I think, with, with the American Western church and, and Christians, and I see it myself as well. 
um, that we're really good about talking about stuff like this. We're really like, good at doing the theoretical thing. We like to, to gather in groups like this and listen to somebody talk about it and feel good and warm and then leave and do our thing. We like to gather in small groups and talk about how it might look, but it never goes any farther than that because there's something that has to take root deep within our soul that we become like Clark Griswold, who's a complete nutcase, but he is an amazing nutcase, and I love his passion. I, I love the, like, the ridiculous cartoon nature of the tree, like, and the light's shining down on it, and he's found his tree, and, and his daughter's frozen from the waist down. He says, oh, it's all part of the experience. Right? He, he's recognizing something in these moments. The thing that he's after, the thing that, that matters most to him is it's not something that's even tangible. Right? The tree is actually a representation of something so much bigger than that. He's got this ideal in his head. He's got this thing that he's chasing, and it's more of like a feeling. It's more of an experience. And what I love about Clark's like pursuit of this experience is it always includes people. And he's all the way through the movie, Clark is, you, if you haven't seen the movie, then I don't know if we can be friends. Um, so I want to say, like, go see this movie um, or wait till Christmas because that's the best time to watch it. Um, but I love his focus. I love his passion. I love his desire to see people experience something different, something new. The kingdom is like this. And Clark's infatuation, his obsession with this Christmas experience is the kind of obsession that Jesus would have us experience for his kingdom and seeing it become tangible in this world. It's that kind of, of crazy obsession um, that, makes him, that makes him fall asleep at his desk dreaming about, about this thing. Well, this is what Jesus wants for us. And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is, sp is spending this entire chapter fleshing out the kingdom, doing things that are exactly like expressions of this kingdom concept. And I want to walk through them a little bit today. But before we do that, I want to go to the very end of Matthew chapter 9. It sort of sets, sets the stage for the why. It answers, why is Jesus going to do all these things that he's doing? So I want to work backwards in Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can get it out. You can follow along. Um, you can look on your phone if you want. But we're going to start in verse 35 of Matthew chapter 9. It, it's, these are maybe some of the most important verses, phrases, um, defining phrases that Jesus ever spoke to, to you and to me, to the church as a whole, to people who have said, I want to make my life um, about following Jesus. And if you, if you call yourself a Christian, that's the claim that you're making, whether you know it or not. I want to follow Jesus with my whole life. So we're going to take that seriously today. Um, we want to take that seriously all the time. And so Jesus is making these statements, these incredible statements. Um, starting in verse 35, it says this, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Verse 36 is our key, our key verse. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused. They were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What I want us to see here is Jesus' sort of intrinsic motivation for everything that he's doing is pouring off the, the pages of this, of this verse. It's what like, compels him, what drives him, what matters most to him. It's his reason. It's his purpose. And it all comes from this, this one word, compassion. It doesn't say when Jesus saw the crowds, he had pity on them. Jesus was perfect, and so as he looked at the brokenness of our world, of all people, he could have been one that approached everyone with sort of like a poor, stupid humans, right? Pity. Pity puts people down. Pity puts people in their place. Pity puts me over somebody else and says, I'm better, so I'm going to help you. 
Jesus didn't do that. It's not his approach because that wasn't the values of his heart. He valued every single human life equally the same all the time. And he came to this earth to come after them, not because we were, not because he, well, he is better than us. So Jesus is a tough, like, distinction to make. But he didn't come like that. He came out of compassion and in this spirit of compassion, an incredible amount of compassion. This is a subtle nuance that would be foolish to miss. If we did, we'd miss the point of all of it. One of the reasons so many are disillusioned about the church in general is that they continually feel like projects. This is where it has to begin. If we start with any other motivation than compassion, then people become projects. Instead of love being our intrinsic motivation, fixing becomes the goal. When fixing becomes our goal, not only do we end up hurting people more, but we are attempting to work way above our pay grade. We can't fix people. As humans, we are perfectly equipped to love, and we are horrifically equipped to fix or change anyone. It is not and never has been the call of the church to change anyone. And we have to start there. We have to recognize that. But to become people or vehicles of compassion in the world that we live in, in the world that we work in, the world that we play in, as we consider this kingdom concept and how we live it, we have to begin with genuine compassion for people in all walks of life that is birthed out of a genuine understanding of our position before God. We come before him humble, recognizing that we are bankrupt, that we have nothing to offer, we have nothing to give. There is nothing in us that is worth the amount of value that our Savior places on our lives. And it's, with, it's, it's, it's through that motivation that we turn around and we, we love people the same way. So this morning, as we continue to bring this idea of, of the kingdom to a tangible place, a tangible kingdom um, in our own lives, I'm praying that every one of us becomes um, like Jesus in our view of the world, in our view of ourselves, in our view of our lives, and begin by loving people with compassion. So I want to dive in, and if you've got your outline, you can take that out, you can follow along, or you can just um, listen, that's fine too. Um, but I want this thing to be fleshed out in real life. I want us to walk out of here today a little bit more aware of, of what the kingdom is and what I want to do today to begin living out this space between, this lifestyle that brings light in dark places, that shows value to human life, and ultimately for the sake of the gospel. Um, so number one on your outline, the kingdom comes when we are, when we are expecting it, when we least expect it. It's not a typo. I know it doesn't sound like it makes sense. I want you to get it. Here's the point. The kingdom can come at any time. We're going to see this in Matthew chapter 9 in just a minute. The kingdom comes powerfully in the lives of people when we are expecting it to happen in the most unexpected moments, right? So get the tension here. It's like we are called to do life expecting God to show up, expecting kingdom opportunities in the most unexpected places. I think for us, as Sunday, church, Sunday morning church-going Christians, we sort of expect all the spiritual stuff in our lives to happen here, in these places. Or when we go to life group, or, or when we listen to music in our car, like Christian music in our, whatever. Like these are the moments that God's going to show up and do something. The reality is it's in the simple moments of life, and we're going to see it in the life of Jesus in just a minute, where the kingdom opportunities come where we have an opportunity to live this thing out in a, in a way that's unique, in a way that's powerful. The kingdom comes powerfully in the lives of people when we are expecting it to happen in the most unexpected moments. 
Um, in Matthew chapter 9, we'll go back to that, and there's a story in verse 9. It's actually the entire chapter. is stories of Jesus just essentially like, like walking through a village or town to town and like doing crazy things, like healing people, restoring people, changing people, speaking with like an authority and a, and a like that nobody understands. Everybody's kind of like, who is this guy? So crowds are gathering like crazy just to see what he's doing. But I think more than that, to, to, to like listen to, to like, like a, a tone of voice and, 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 and a way that he's going about his business that's just like nothing they've ever seen before. Jesus is the most intriguing human that any of them had ever seen. And it's like, we got we to gotta see what he's going to do next. We got we to gotta figure out what's going to happen next. So he come to this story in verse 9 and says this, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. That's weird in and of itself, right? Dude is working, right? And Jesus comes up to him and says, hey, come with me. He's like, all right. Like, we don't do that kind of stuff. But something is so different about the way Jesus is doing this thing. There's lots of nuances that I can't get into today. Um, But let's continue, verse 10. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. This tax collector invites Jesus over to his house along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, Pharisees are those religious, the religious leaders of the day who always hated Jesus and pretty much hated everybody in the world. Um, but when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scriptures. Like, listen to what Jesus is saying right there. That is like as in your face as you can get, because these guys he's talking to, their lives are committed to writing and rewriting the scriptures and memorizing and learning it and then lording it over people. That's what they do. That's all they do with their whole lives. So they know it better than anybody, by far. And Jesus looks at him in the face and says, now go learn what you've been writing over and over for your entire lives. And he says this, now go and learn the meaning of the scriptures. I want you to show mercy Um, not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, another jab, but those who know they are sinners. I love this story for so many reasons. Jesus going up to a guy just on the street as he is going um, and and ending ending up in his home, sitting around a table with with really the, the scum of society, the people who most people look down on the most, and the most popular guy in town, the most like revolutionary guy these people have ever seen, he is right there in the middle, hanging out, enjoying these people, and the religious guys don't like it at all. Um, This passage right here, 9 through 12, if you want to spend more time with it this week, do it, because the heart of Jesus is on display in this this passage, these like four verses, I think, as well as anywhere else in the entire Bible. Um, So go there, look at some of the subtle nuances of the way that Jesus interacts with people and what he cares about, what he values. I wish I could spend like the entire time talking about that, but I can't. Um, Jesus lived his life expecting kingdom opportunities. This is the point. As a result, he saw every opportunity as a kingdom one, even this one. He approached a tax booth. Jesus engaged with him in that moment, led to another opportunity for the kingdom when Matthew, the tax collector, invited him to have a meal at his house with many other disreputable sinners, scum, as they would later be called by the religious guys. It's in this moment that Jesus would slam the kingdom on the table. And so often we, get, we, we forget that those people are still sitting around the table while Jesus is going after 
these religious guys, right? They're just sitting there listening as Jesus is tearing apart the religious structure of the day and saying, you guys missed the entire point, and these are the people that I love the most. And the, and the religious guys are like, what? And, the, and the, like the disreputable sinners, I don't know, like you name it, they're sitting there going, I don't know, what are they saying? I don't know, you fill in the blanks. Imagine, this is a kingdom moment. This is Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth and leveling the playing field, saying what you've always valued, I don't value that stuff. I value grace and mercy, forgiveness, hope, life, freedom for everyone in my name. It's powerful. It's in this moment that Jesus would begin to change the landscape of the social culture that would ultimately lead to his death. Are you living, here's the question, are you living your life with expectancy, believing that God wants to put you in situations where you can clarify the kingdom to this world. You have them every single day. This is the point. Okay, Jesus wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. He was walking from one town to another town, and on the way he saw a guy, and he chose to meaningfully engage with this man, and it led to this situation, the kingdom. Boom. Smack dab in the middle of some guy's living room with prostitutes, sinners, Gamblers, alcoholics, you name it. And in that moment, he says, guess what? These are my people. This is who I came for. These are the ones that I love. And it flipped everything upside down on top of its head. Confusion, right? He was ready. Are you living your life expecting for God to do that? Here is the heart of it. I found this quote from the CEO of J. Crew. He says, I'm an agent of change all day long, and I want to meet people like that. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he actually lives for, but this is the mindset that I'm talking about. This is the mindset that Jesus is showing us. Do you know that you are an agent of change for the kingdom? Do you know that you are filled with hope for the purpose of spreading hope? Did you know that you have been made new so that you could reconcile relationships in others? Did you know that you were called to a purpose the, that purpose is to live out the kingdom on earth. Okay, you can't program this stuff. The church can't do this. Our Sunday gatherings are, are like useless in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. It has to happen in your life, in the everyday moments of my life, when I choose, when I choose to engage and connect. You can live life expecting the kingdom to come and being ready to make it tangible in real people's lives all the time. But we have to believe it. We have to want it. And we have to believe that God has chosen to give us that ministry. Otherwise, we simply will be too distracted, too busy, which leads to number two on your outline. The kingdom comes when we take time for it. The power of the kingdom isn't constrained by circumstances, right? We've got opportunities all the time. It's not constrained by circumstances, but is, but is constrained by distractedness and indifference. At the end of the day, it's not for a lack of opportunity for the, for the kingdom, for the gospel. It's for a lack of awareness that God is moving and working in our lives all the time. It begins with a heart of compassion and begins recognizing that God has called us to this incredible thing and it's, and it's an all-day, all-in, all-the-time kind of a concept. This is the kingdom. We can't program it. We simply have to live it. But then choosing to take the time to see it happen all the way through these stories. And you can read any of them. You, one of the things you see Jesus giving over and over and over is time. Like he's not in a rush. 
He even like pushes other people aside so he can focus on one person. Okay, this isn't the fast way to do ministry, right? It's not the fast way, but it is the only way the kingdom can actually come to be a person who lives out the power of the kingdom on this earth. It requires an all-in lifestyle choice. It requires that we become obsessed with it so that it continually is weighing heavy on our minds. We give our obsessed like Clark. Um, if you're, if you're going to be accused of being obsessed with something, what would that thing be? Ask yourself that question in these moments. And I hear it. Like I ask myself, am I obsessed with the kingdom so much that I'm willing to put everything else aside for one more kingdom opportunity? I'm not sure I can honestly answer yes to that. I want to be a person that can. This is the heart of Jesus. What if God's people spent more time preoccupied with the suffering going on in our world than we do with our retirement portfolios? What if God's people spent more time seeking social reconciliation in our cities than we do political rights? What if God's people spent more time praying for the restoration of our community than the safety of our children? This is borderline obsession. Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom, and his obsession made him take time for it because the kingdom takes time. And this is the rub for us. Because when we are, in fact, obsessed with something, we find time for it. And until we become obsessed to like a near unhealthy place, we will not have time for people. We will not be patient enough to do the long, hard at times, chaotic, always, process of bringing the kingdom to earth. If you're not sure if that's true, just, just read all of like Luke. And you'll see it over and over, the chaos in Jesus' life, the continual setting aside of himself that obviously like, finishes off with him giving everything. You want to talk about obsession? Willing to lay down his own life because you, me, we, we mattered more. Obsession. You see it. You see Jesus taking time because of his obsession. Um, another story in Matthew chapter 9. This one's in verse 40 on the other side. Actually, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to move. I'm going to go to, chat, to Luke that tells the same story um, because there's way more details and it's better. So we're still technically in Matthew chapter 9, but I like the way Luke tells it better. So we're going to go with that one. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Right? You get this picture that people are just lining up to see what he's going to do next. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying as Jesus went with him. So Jesus agrees, right? Jesus went with him. He was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith is what's made you well. Go in peace. What's so striking about this story is how much time Jesus took for this little interaction. And keep in mind what he's doing. He's a busy guy, right? He just got done having this meal with, with Matthew and all the disreputable sinners and just got done telling off the, the Pharisees, the religious guys, and he's just like, he's moving on, like continuing to walk, and, and a really important guy, Jairus, comes up to him and says, my daughter is dying, and I need you to come and heal my daughter. So Jesus is going, 
right? It's still this constantly organic. He's going and he's moving and he's looking for opportunities for the kingdom and a better one comes up. Better clarification of what matters to Jesus, right? Remember the kingdom blessed are the poor, the humble, the meek, for they, theirs is the kingdom. And in this moment, Jesus is going to show us what that actually looks like because this woman um, comes up to him from behind. You imagine the crowds pressing in. I love this. I, this is such a funny interaction to me. And, and she's like, I imagine that she's thinking, man, if I can just get close to Jesus, I might get healed. She believes in his power to that extent, which is a whole other conversation and subject, but it's pretty cool. Right? So she goes up. She grabs his cloak. Jesus stops. And at this point, Jesus is the center of attention. So when Jesus stops, it's like, you know, if, if you're walking through a crowd at, like, Husker Stadium and somebody stops, like, what happens? It's like a domino pile-up effect, right? That's going on. Like, he stops, everybody stops. It's like, what's going on? Why are you stopping? They're probably moving fairly quickly to go, like, rescue this little girl, right? So everybody stops. I'm sure it's chaos. Jesus is silent. The crowd, the hush goes over the crowd, and he turns around, and there's a woman kneeling. Um, and this woman has had very little human, like, interaction in a very long time. She's been outcast because she's seen as unclean perpetually bleeding, hemorrhaging on the inside. And so she's been pushed aside, had no relationships. Everybody's sort of like, like pushed her out of their lives, just like the crowds are currently pushing her out now. And Jesus is on his way to do this really important thing for this really important guy. And in that moment, he stops. He stops. He takes time for her. I love it says, um, it actually like clarifies a woman in the crowd that had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. She, there's another, I think it's in, in Mark that tells this story. And it talks about how she'd been abused by doctors in her attempt to get healing. So she's just as hurting as anyone can possibly be. Um, and it clarifies that Jesus stopped and he took time. The whole crowd heard her explain. Right? We're talking about an interaction that's more than just like, okay, yeah, you got, your, you got healed, now get out of here. I got more important things to do. He sat there with her while she told him her entire story, clarifying in this moment. I want to listen to who? The broken, the cast aside. This moment the kingdom came to earth. He took time. Friends, the hardest part of being kingdom people is being willing to give up the time that it takes to live it out. Because we can't fix people, right? We can't change people. We want instant gratification, but in the kingdom there is no such thing. And so it takes time and chaos to show a person value. And if we're not willing to give it, we will never experience the power of the kingdom on earth through our lives. It happens when we look, when we look people in the eyes, when we listen to people's soul cravings instead of listening to their tone of voice. It happens when we take the time to look, listen, hear the heart cry of our world. You can't do this overnight. The kingdom doesn't come fast. It comes slow. It takes time. And it comes through life-on-life life interaction. That's what the kingdom is about. I think we've gotten so caught up with, with fast, exploding-type movement things that look like they've got lots of life because there's lots of energy and lots of people attached to it. The truth is the kingdom doesn't come there. It comes in life-on-life in life interactions. I want you to feel the urgency this morning why was Jesus constantly talking about the kingdom to his people? It's because it is urgent. It matters. But it takes time. Finally, number three, the kingdom comes when we believe in it enough to pray for it. The foundation of this entire kingdom concept 
comes to us from the Lord's Prayer. If you're with us in week one, you remember that's what our passage was, right? Um, his disciples are asking him questions, and Jesus, like, the, the conversation comes up, how do we pray? And Jesus says, pray like this. He says, say this, our Father who's in heaven, glory be to your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's this, like, this call on our lives to value the kingdom so much that we actually want to make earth look like heaven, right? And it all comes in the context of prayer. And when Jesus tells us to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, it's fitting then that Jesus addresses the power of prayer again in Matthew chapter 9, right, where we started. We just got this incredible picture of the heart of Jesus for people, watching him heal people, take time for people, display his value for broken people, for hurting people, clarifying his loyalty and his, and his desire to show compassion, his heart for mankind. And then, Matthew 9, 37 to 38, right? It's the very end of Matthew chapter 9. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. In this moment, Jesus set a mandate on those who call themselves followers of Jesus. A mandate. It's simple. It's urgent. It's not optional. He says, this is what matters to me. This is what matters to my heart. But not only did he set a mandate for what, but he clarified the most powerful tool we have at our disposal for seeing the kingdom come on earth. It's really simple. It's prayer. Here's the reality, my friends. The kingdom is in our hands. In fact, it's already among us. We have it. It has been entrusted to us. Luke chapter 17, 20 to 21. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. We're already equipped. I love this passage. I love how it tells us the kingdom is already here. It's already with us. It's in our lives. We hold the keys to it. And he's, he's, given us, he's given us the responsibility of being people who live it out in the everyday moments of our lives. It reminds me of a family road trip, right? And, and the kids in the back seat that five minutes into the trip, they're going, are we there yet? When are we going to be there? It's like these Pharisees asking, when is the kingdom coming? And I've been in that situation. As a kid, we drove from Los Angeles to Norfolk, Nebraska every summer for my entire upbringing. And I remember getting five minutes in and, and going, are we there yet? Right? And like Clark Griswold walking through the snow and saying, hey, it's all part of the experience. The kingdom is with us now. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's now and it's coming. And there's something better we have to look forward to. But we don't sit here with our hands like underneath our seat and go, I can't wait for the kingdom to come. Because God is saying, no, don't, you're not waiting for anything. The kingdom is happening now, and you get to be part of it. And in fact, the kingdom that's coming is so much better if you invest for the kingdom on earth right now. Because people matter more than anything else. People matter. It's a powerful reality in our lives if we choose to embrace it. This is the, the question that we're asking ourselves today. He's calling us to see the kingdom as right now and as urgent as accessible and powerful. He's calling them, these people, and us to become obsessed with it, preoccupied with, with it. If you've not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will, in the end, make no difference what you have chosen instead. William Law said that. The way we choose 
the kingdom every day begins with us choosing to value it enough to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest field, that God would do the work in the hearts of the people around us. Here's another reality that I don't want you to miss. If we just become people who live our lives doing a lot of good and saying a lot of really nice things, those are, it's good. We want to do that. We want to be people who add joy to people's lives and love people really well. We do it without the gospel, and it's just as useless as not doing it. The goal of the church is not to be humanitarians. That will come in the process, but the truth, the, the simple reality is that the gospel is urgent. And the Lord of the harvest, the guy who's in charge of transforming lives, the only one who can, it's not us. He asks us for one simple thing, to pray. Our obsession with the kingdom begins on our knees. It begins in prayer. As we pray, we become more expectant. As we pray, we become more aware as we pray, we become more compassionate. As we pray, we become more accessible. As we pray, we become more like Jesus. I don't know how to say this any other way that will sink in, but prayer is the work. Any other work doesn't really work. God is calling us to love people in the everyday moments of our lives, to take time for people, for the kingdom to come. And he's asking us to get on our knees and pray that he would do the transforming work the powerful work in people's lives that we can't accomplish, that we can't pull off, and it would be so useless to try. What I'm talking about here isn't just a new way to think about the world. It's a new way to, to live in the world. And the Western American church, like I already said, has done a fantastic job of creating a culture of theoretical people. We like to read and we like to discuss. We adopt values and talk about how they might look. We identify them in the Bible and talk about how Jesus lived them. But what is the result what about us? We aren't really any different. Ask yourself this question. When is the last time God used you in a space-between type moment to bring the kingdom into a person's life, to shine the light of the kingdom into dark spaces? Because that's all that matters. That's the only thing that's worth actually measuring. None of this does. Are we going to be a people who choose to embrace this identity and live into it? I would... I dream of, of a church where, where we have so many stories to tell about the kingdom throughout our week that we just like can't stop. What if our church gatherings were filled continually with stories of gospel impact, of life change that we didn't do? They all start with, yeah, I saw this person and I just felt like compassion towards them and then this crazy stuff happened because God is amazing. This is the kingdom. It's not about us. When's the last time God used you like that? When is the last time you saw brokenness in your face and it overcame you so much that it distracted you from getting work done? When's the last time you saw, when's the last time you saw something that broke your heart enough to ruin your evening? When's the last time you were, your, your world was wrecked because you noticed how wrecked someone else's world was and you felt powerless to do anything about it? I fear that our best case scenario is we see pain in our world and we're disgusted by it. Maybe we make a comment to whoever's sitting next to us on the couch. And then we go eat dinner. And we go on about our lives. The heart of Jesus was consumed, obsessed with suffering, pain, hurt, injustice, to the point that he was willing to give it all. Why? Because he knew that he had what, what would fix that brokenness. And guess what? So do you. And here's the other reality. Nobody else does. Only the power of the gospel can transform. 
And if you've been transformed by it, you are equipped. So what do we do? i got to confess that one of my biggest struggles with being in this role is standing up here, talking to people in contexts like this and feeling like afraid. Like how do I walk this line between like telling the truth and, and making sure people walk out of here happy enough that they want to come back? Like that's a, a, like a really human like confession that I have to make. And I don't know exactly what to do with it, but I know that you hold the keys to the kingdom. So do I. I'm in this group as well. And I'm, I'm not any better than you. But God has to do something in our hearts. He has to wreck us to the point where we are not content anymore with just going through motions. We have a roadmap laid out for us. What does this look like? And you have people in your life all day, every day, that God is saying, there it is. The kingdom is right there. Mm, there it is. Because every interaction you have is a kingdom opportunity. I fear we are way too comfortable being like the Pharisees in Luke 17 when they came to Jesus and said, when will the kingdom of heaven come? And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, like it can't be detected. It can't be programmed. You can't say, oh, there's the kingdom because the kingdom is in you. And it's waiting God is waiting for you to embrace it, take hold of it. So let's stop asking, when is the kingdom going to come? And let's start bringing the kingdom to earth right now in the everyday moments of life. God, um, you are the only one worth living for. And we can sit, we can sit here in these moments and, and we can feel convicted or we can feel like bored or whatever it is that that are in our selfishness we, we often tend to feel. Um, or we can recognize that something, something different could be going on in our lives. This thing, this, this kingdom concept is, it's something that's like outside of our ability to understand and yet at the same time I think that we know, we get it, we, we sense the reality of what it could be and Lord, my prayer and my hope is that we would not be content with being a a theoretical church. And maybe it's even, even more micro than that, of being theoretical people who like to read books about it, who like to have conversations and discussions about it. We'd be people who become obsessed, consumed, preoccupied with this idea of the kingdom. And maybe you made it kind of a fleeting concept because, because you wanted us to have to chase it. Maybe you made it so out, just out of our reach so that we would never be content or we couldn't settle for having it. I pray that you'd set us in motion, put us on, on the run, on the chase for this, this kingdom thing. And every time we experience it, just a little bit, that it would create a hunger in us for more of that. Awake the sleeping giant that is the church. I know that only in in the context of, of dependency on you, a surrender to your will over mine, because my will is, my will is flawed, and it is, it is seeking comfort at every turn. God, we need you to do something in our hearts and lives. We need, we need you to transform us. And I, Lord, I pray for the individuals in this room, because that's where it starts. Allow us to do business in our own hearts with where we're at in relation 
to some of these hard questions. If nothing else, even today as we leave, I pray that your, your spirit would, would find its way into our hearts enough that, that in the very next time that we are faced with that kingdom moment, maybe it's the, the server at lunch that is clearly oozing pain. And maybe we don't like get it right the first time, but we see it and we notice it and we connect with what I could have been in that moment that would have brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. We become people who are intentionally creative, excited when we wake up, not to go to work, not to go to school, not to go work out, play our sport, whatever it is that we do with our day, excited because right around the next corner, by very next interaction, I get to bring the kingdom of heaven here to this earth. That, God, that awakens the sleeping giant that is the church, that is your church. You looked Peter in the face and said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot, cannot overpower it. Lord, it's our desire that you would do that with us. Start with willing hearts. Maybe it begins with making our hearts willing. We'll start there. We'll take that. But use the willing hearts to transform this city, this community, our lives, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.